So, Daniel, one of our loyal listeners has given me a very important piece of feedback, which is apparently I struggle to say my own name in the introductions of the podcast, <laughs> which might just honestly be one of the most embarrassing things in the universe. Hello, and welcome to the Pinner Factory. My name's Move. <laughs> Welcome to the Fin Factory, the Addison Institute's podcast. My name is Matthew Lash, and I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-hosts and our head of programs, Daniel Pryor, as well as our head of government affairs, John McDonald. This week, we're going to be discussing the roadmap out of lockdown, proposals to strengthen free speech at universities, and the latest with the royal family. Prime Minister Boris Johnson is expected to announce a much-anticipated roadmap out of lockdown on Monday. The Prime Minister said the lifting of restrictions would be in stages uh, and a cautious approach, expected to begin with schools in March, followed by expanded socialising in April, uh, a limited restaurant and pub opening in May, the most important part, of course, and a fuller reopening in June. Uh, Matthew, just to start us off, the UK has kind of long passed peak COVID now and vaccine program is progressing quite substantially. Uh, Is this sort of timeline about right or do you think it's maybe too slow or or even too fast? I think it's it's hard for Boris Johnson in a sense that we're very much in uncharted waters, um, that there remains risks of these mutated strains which could undermine the whole vaccine effort. Um, Boris has said that he doesn't want to do another lockdown, that this will be the final lockdown, although of course Previous lockdowns were also meant to be final lockdowns. Um, if he wants to make that seriously the case, um, there is probably an, a strong argument for being relatively cautious at this point, especially since we don't know necessarily what the impact completely is going to be the vaccines. We do obviously know that they stop severe disease, um, but at the same time, they they while they do seem to reduce transmission, they, they don't take transmission down to zero, and there remains a quite large number of people in the population who are vulnerable um, to COVID, both in the sense of vulnerable dying from COVID, also potentially vulnerable to a, a long COVID kind of syndrome. And, and quite frankly, if you want to lift out lockdown, you also want to try to minimise the risk uh, of future mutations. And I think the challenge here for mutations, particularly at this point when they've only partly vaccinated the population, is that in the unvaccinated part of the population, a mutation that might be irrelevant um, becomes very relevant because it skips over the vaccine and then that spreads into the vaccinated population. And not quite back to square zero, as we discussed last week, you can still do new updated vaccine shots, but all that's going to slow down the whole process and extend out the potential for lockdown and extend out the risks, risks to human life again, especially people who might have survived COVID the first time um, who are a bit older then can, can get it again, even if they have been vaccinated. It would be quite a disheartening situation. So I can appreciate that the, the Prime Minister wants to be cautious here so that things are better off down the line. And John, would you say that the, the kind of idea of actually putting a date on a roadmap out of lockdown or, or putting a kind of, you know, a timestamp roadmap is the right approach in general? Because we've got these sort of, you know, potential threats of new variants coming up. We can't predict the future with 100% accuracy. Is this just a kind of a political compromise to, to give people light at the end of the tunnel or, or is it actually right that we do um, have spell out specific dates? Well, I think 
there's a sort of discussion to be had about whether or not we go by date, which I think people want because they, as you say, they want the certainty of, okay, I will be able to kind of go out more. I'll be able to see my friends, et cetera, go to the pub by this time. But I think there's kind of a push from the, from the COVID recovery group side of things to kind of go more based on a threshold set by the case numbers and the death rate as it comes down. So presumably if we manage to get to a thousand deaths, uh, sorry, not a thousand deaths, crikey, a thousand cases a day or below, um, then for some that would be an appropriate time to start opening back up quite quickly. Um, whereas if you if you stick with, okay, no, we will only open up again by this date, be it you know, April 7th, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure what the actual date would be, um, then you, there is a chance that there'll be quite a lot of political pressure to try and to try and do things sooner if if the vaccinations are going better than the government has, is otherwise anticipating. And what are your thoughts on that kind of the COVID recovery group view, Matthew, the calling for all restrictions to be removed pretty much straight away once we've got all of the, the most vulnerable groups vaccinated? Um, the, the argument that, well, the risk of death has disappeared, so society should reopen straight away. Do you think that that's a compelling one? Look, in a sense, I am quite sympathetic to that view that if the entire point of lockdowns is to protect the lives of vulnerable people, um, the case for continued restrictions um, definitely disappears uh, very rapidly. But I, I think at the same time, and, and this is a, a very difficult balancing game, again, when uh, the UK is one of the first countries in the world to have vaccinated so many people, um, there's very few places to look to, obviously, Israel being one of them. Um, who vaccinated even more in terms of what happens after you vaccinated people? What what um, is the result of of broad mass population vaccinations using this technology? Um, is that we've been in a situation previously over the summer last summer where the UK's COVID case numbers were genuinely extremely low, um, even lower than a thousand cases a day or many uh, many times, and there was a supposition at that point. In fact, I. Um, even floated with the idea that it might be right that effectively COVID, COVID was finished and that there was no guarantee that there'd be further waves. Now, unfortunately, we've now seen probably more people die in the second wave than, than died in the first wave. And the last thing you want is a third wave that, that kills more people again um, and makes basically every previous lockdown completely irrelevant. Um, I'm not sure that there's a good solution here as well because what, what is the medium to long term, particularly with the fact that COVID is, is spreading outside of the UK quite rapidly, um, going back to the conversation we had last week, which is that you've got to strengthen the borders, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of political will to strengthen the borders again, so that this risk of um, introducing vaccine-resistant strains comes from outside the country as much as inside the country, even even post-vaccination. Um it, it's hard, it's, it's kind of, I suppose, easy from afar, the fact that I'm in Australia now, um, to say that the UK should be cautious in lifting lockdowns. So I don't, I don't want to, you know, presuppose that as this is what the policy solution must be. Um, and I think Australia's got its own challenges in terms of the fact that vaccinations haven't really started yet and that there's literally no plan to open the border even potentially after vaccinations. So th- these these um, decisions we're making now aren't easy and are sadly probably going to stretch out the crisis for a lot longer. But we, I think we have to remember that the even worse thing to happen is just for another wave of COVID that kills another you know, 50,000, 60,000, 70,000 people, um, not all of whom definitely were about to die anyway, but are still, you know, each life is, is a tragic loss. And, and I think um, 
Although, of course, we accept that, you know, zero risk is not necessarily the outcome we need or want. Um, we can't accept that level of, of widespread deaths from, from another wave of COVID. So you've got to be quite careful about what you do next. And you mentioned, um, obviously, the government being cautious on, on various forms of, of lockdown recovery. One area where they're arguably being a lot less cautious on is the expected reopening of schools. I mentioned in the introduction to this section, it looks like the Prime Minister is suggesting that they'll reopen them, uh, at least in part, uh, sometime in March. And there's been this, this underlying assumption that I think has strengthened over the past few weeks that actually closing skill, schools as a pandemic control measure is not particularly effective uh, at reducing the R rate and at the same time is extremely damaging to uh, the children that are deprived of their education. Uh, would you say the government's right to, to kind of prioritise education as one of the first things to, to really focus on? Yeah, I mean, not being an epidemiologist, I, it's very difficult for me to say one way or other if I, if I think that, uh, that, that, that schools are a vector for spreading the disease. You know, I, I, you see some people saying that it is and others saying that it's absolutely not. The truth is somewhere probably in between. Um, but I do think they're right to try and get kids back to school before opening up sectors of the economy. I mean, I think especially primary school kids are suffering quite a lot under the lockdown. I think the, the kind of long-term consequences of them missing out on, I think at this point, effectively a year really of proper education. They've been in and out of school kind of off and on since the first lockdown last March. Um, so I think it's it's probably vital to kind of get them back to some state of normality before everyone else. Yeah, I, I worry, I think, that you mentioned that the truth is probably somewhere in between mm. uh, schools being a substantial versus not really a cause of additional infections. I worry that recently in the news cycle, we've seen uh, a lot of coverage of this study that's come out recently suggesting that, that schools aren't really uh, a major source. And uh, it's, it's an interesting study. Um, it, it's quite a good one and suggests that there doesn't seem to be too much of an impact and actually schools tend to reflect levels of community transmission rather than actively causally influencing them. But there is uh, also a substantial body of evidence that, that suggests the opposite. Um, I think most recently, in fact, it, it might still be in preprint and not peer-reviewed, so we should be cautious yeah. to some extent. But there was a uh, London um, School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine study that suggested actually reopening schools uh, would increase the R rate quite significantly. I think that their confidence uh, were, yeah. were quite high, something like 20 to, to 90%. So, uh, yeah, not, <laughs> not, the most, uh, not the most accurate in terms of predictive power, but nonetheless indicative that, that actually we, we might have some trouble if we open schools. And, of course, there's a distinction as well between primary and secondary schools with um, people the, the older they get, the children the older they get, the more likely they are to... Um, to, to transmit the infection, basically. So, Matthew, would you say, uh, would you agree that, that the truth is somewhere in between on schools, that we, we should be perhaps more cautious than we are being, but but not quite as cautious as um, some of the teachers' unions perhaps want us to be? <laughs> well, I, I think particularly schools were kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Um, I don't buy the idea that keeping schools closed, particularly for this long, um, won't have much impact on, on children's education. I think particularly for people who are in primary school who need to learn key skills. Um, for someone who comes from a relatively privileged background, they're probably doing okay at home with home parenting um, and the like and, and relatively good support from, from teachers. Um, I don't think particularly more disadvantaged children who are already you know, behind in a lot of ways 
uh, are going to be able to um, have the same experience and are, are going to struggle a lot. On the other hand, though, it's not worth opening schools if it's if it's going to literally kill people as a result because it's going to spread the virus around. Um, and I think there is a risk there that that opening schools and that schools do act as as a schools do act as a vector transmission. Um, one part that hasn't been thought about as much in particular is the fact that the new UK strain, which is now dominant, um, potentially could actually um, lead to more cases amongst younger people and, and lead to more symptomatic spread amongst school-aged kids. So even if the, the previous iteration of COVID didn't really look like it spread that well amongst kids, this new one might. So it might have effectively evolutionarily adapted to the fact that we do want kids to be at school. Um, I suspect that it is right in a way to open schools. I've, I've heard uh, apparently in Hong Kong or something, schools are, are the first things to close, the last things to open, and that you can take the kind of reverse approach with schools uh, as, as vectors of transmission and what is getting closed. I'm sympathetic that the, the pressure the government's under to get kids back to school for the, those reasons I said at the start, and therefore can understand that they want to try it. Now, reopening schools doesn't really have much impact if there isn't that much COVID in the community. And because COVID in the community is declining, there probably is a capacity to open schools uh, whether or not that then use up, you know, the R budget, so you can't open much else for now, quite possibly. Uh, I think it's going to have to do something that, that's watched very carefully. The government will watch very carefully. Um, I did also like the news this week about the, the mass testing. I think we've talked about testing quite a lot, and I've particularly have been banging on about rapid mass testing using these new technologies like LAMP and lateral flows tests. Uh, I think they have huge potential to pick up those um, infectious cases that the slower PCR test system will never be able to do. And the government's talking about testing kids twice a week and then um, having a more targeted approach to, to shutting down transmission. Uh, I think that's something that could potentially prove quite effective um, if it's allowed to go ahead by, by the regulators and, and embraced by people as a way um, to, to limit the spread of COVID. Yeah, I think there's probably more consensus for the question of primary schools there because you mentioned that the kind of key skills that can be, be lost out that especially apply to primary school and that, that kind of trade-off applying slightly differently there. And I think even the most uh, the most radical paid-up members of the signaling model of education suggesting that actually it, it doesn't have as much of an impact on our, our human capital would agree that uh, when it comes to primary schools, there's, there is quite a significant loss to be had from from closing them. Um, secondary schools as well, of course, but, but more so... Uh, primary schools but moving to kind of we've been talking about the next few months uh, and what's going to happen or what might happen recently what about looking into the kind of the next few years can we expect some restrictions like the the rule of six your indoor mask wearing and potentially even travel restrictions to actually continue for for a lot longer than the the kind of months long timeline more into the years long timeline so I wanted to uh, I wanted to make a point about travel restrictions. I'm kind of glad we came back to it because I've noticed in the UK we seem we seem to be quite optimistic about international travel. So I mean that there was that we whole just debacle. want to get out of here <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> there was that whole debacle about uh, the, one of uh, one of the press conferences where Matt Hancock was telling the 1922 committee that he'd booked his holiday for Cornwall, and then Boris was saying that we can't go anywhere for summer, or at least it's too early to say. Sorry, I should specify. Um, so there were kind of mixed messages coming out of the government at the time. Um, but what I hear from, uh, like, I was listening to a podcast earlier today where. Someone was saying that Canada is is not saying that uh, like international travel will really resume a kind of a more normal schedule until sometime in 2022. I'm sure Lash Australia is uh, 
probably a little less optimistic than summer this year as to when people will be able to fly in and out of Australia without restriction. Yeah, I think it's quite an interesting one. Um, I've always noted as as a fascinating kind of social phenomenon that British people tend to leave the country precisely when the weather is the nicest, when, yep. when finally Britain becomes a pleasant, <laughs> lovely place to be um, over the summer. You might think it's a little bit warm, but I think it's I think it's a lovely temperate um, uh, climate over the summer. Everyone is in such a rush to get out, and it's it's always kind of fascinated and, and bewindled me. I mean, <laughs> as an Australian, I, I suppose I'm supposed to use the stereotype of you know uh, trips to the continent every weekend um, in in order to to make the most of, of, of the opportunity of, of being in Europe. I, I think it is something that there is a. I think you're right, John. I think there is a lot of options about it. Um, Australia is almost kind of resigned to the fact that it probably isn't going to be, you know, particularly open in accessible international travel uh, for at least the next 12 months. And, and I think, quite frankly, it could go on longer just because of Australia's um, relative lack of willingness to accept any kind of risk. Um, I think that the practical way to do this, if, if you want to stay safe, and I don't know if the world's going to be well enough organised by this, is to have kind of red zone, orange zone, green zone, so that between countries with very low numbers of covid um, you, you basically open up travel corridors um, yeah. with the condition of testing and vaccinations once they're available uh, and you let people kind of relatively freely go between those countries. Um, and then other countries where the COVID risk remains quite high, um, unfortunately, you're going to have to quarantine on on potentially both ends or one end or, or whatever else it may be. Um, I noted that Israel's, you know, talking you know, a little bit ahead again, uh, in terms of their progress, they're introducing this, and this has been a big debate, maybe we'll probably come back to another time in more detail, but this vaccine passport question. Um, is Israel's introducing a system where people can, you know, be green lit as having vaccines, and apparently that's already talk of it being recognised by Greece, so Greece will accept Israeli travellers who've been vaccinated. Now, I'm not the hugest fan of rushing into a vaccine passport system, in particular in the UK, since not everyone's going to have vaccines just yet, but in the longer run, I think that's going to be the kind of system uh, we can look forward to. And I think that could enable most international travel again, albeit with a little bit more friction. Well, I think we'll leave it there for that section and move on to the uh, new government proposals to strengthen free speech at universities. The government has announced plans to strengthen free speech on campus. They want to legislate to strengthen requirements to protect free speech, to create a free speech and academic freedom champion and allow aggrieved academics and students to seek legal damages for infringement of their free speech rights. The first question that always tends to come up in these kind of debates about free speech on campus, Daniel, is, is there actually a problem? Uh, you were a student not long ago. You head up our education programs and, and have a lot to do with students still. Uh, do, do you think that there is a, a crisis of free speech on campus or that there is some kind of underlying problem that the government's going after here? Or is this just another page, another chapter in the kind of the culture war? Well, Matthew, thankfully we can rely on our good friends at the National Union of Students here who assure us that there is no uh, free speech. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. I read it directly in Pravda, actually, that, that everything <laughs> free speech was very much encouraged in the Soviet Union. I mean, at universities. <laughs> oh, that's the end of that section. Glad we saw it that one. Up. No, um, and that's that's all the speech you're allowed to have on this podcast. I'm afraid uh, the rest of it's now been banned. Um, so, so I think it's worth. Um, it's quite useful to compare the UK to the US to kind of get an idea of whether there's a crisis here. And before I started at the Adam Smith Institute, I worked at 
Students for Liberty in the United States. Uh, and I think that in the US, it's pretty much impossible for any reasonable person to argue that there's not an absolute crisis of free speech on campus. Uh, and coming back to the UK and starting our education programs at the ASI and hearing from students at, at various events and visiting universities, there is definitely a problem. Um, whether it goes so far as a crisis, um, I'm not sure that's the, the best characterization of it, but there is definitely a problem, whether it's uh, limiting or blocking the sale of certain publications, um, kind of failing to prevent or even encouraging violence at certain meetings, um, the, the kind of bureaucracy that student unions tend to impose on inviting speakers that is supposed to be, uh, or is couched in the language of kind of safety and compliance, but often the Clearly, the intention is, is to restrict free speech through um, security requirements, etc. Um, banning certain groups from freshers' fairs. I know in my own um, university days, there was obviously the, the whole Robin Thick blurred lines controversy. But when we tried to start um, a society that looked at um, issues primarily faced by men, like homelessness, for example, and, uh, and suicide, we were barred from doing that because the uh, student union was worried that we were actually a bunch of misogynists as opposed to people who wanted to, to tackle specific uh, intersections of homelessness. So yes, there's definitely an issue here. Uh, and I think that anyone that, that tries to just completely downplay it as the National Union of Students have, uh, are just putting their fingers in their ears and saying, la, 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 there's no problem here. Our cozy consensus is correct. Yeah, I, I should lay my cards on the table and say that before I started working at the ASI, I, I did a lot of work on the campus free speech issue, particularly within the Australian context. And funny enough, uh, a lot of the, the discussion after I'd been talking about this for a few years was, well, there might be a problem of free speech in the, on US campuses and British campuses, but there isn't one in Australia at all. There's nothing, there's nothing to see here. So it's, it's and I, I will happily admit that there's definitely more issues in the UK than there are in Australia on, on campus free speech. There's just a lot bigger, more campuses, a lot more going on, and it's, it's kind of more aggressive. Um, political culture. Uh, but I think the reason why we care about this, quite frankly, is because, you know, we, we always know free speech is important as a, a tool, as, as a way we explore ideas, we have debates, and I'd even make a, a rights-based argument you might dislike, Daniel, that there's something inherent about the fact that we're able to um, say ideas uh, that we're thinking, that even if they don't actually have any value in debate, that as a human you should have every right to express an idea as a, as a virtue of being able to think. Um, at another level at universities, universities um, practically exist for the purpose of exploring ideas, at least in, in uh, an, an idealised sense. You can say they have some kind of educational role and, and socialisation role and, all the, and whatever else. But the traditional idea of university as a place of inquiry, of learning, of teaching, requires free speech. And any threats, any signs that that is being weakened, I think undermines the entire institution, the entire purpose of a university. Um, and there's lots of different examples. You just went through some of them. Um, of people being sacked, of um, speakers being banned. Um, and these kind of things happen again and again and again. Now, you can say that there are isolated incidences, but when these isolated incidences kind of uh, seem quite repeated, I don't know, you know, crisis or no crisis, whatever language you want to use, um, there is clearly an issue that needs to be addressed. Um, and there's clearly policies that often undermine free speech. There's actions taken by student unions, as you were saying, uh, in the bureaucratic realm. Um, Max Young, who, who co-wrote a paper uh, for the ASI on particular student union aspect of this, 
um, made the point that even if um, student unions, as they now will have to protect free speech formally under the law, they still use bureaucratic means um, like requiring you to submit a um, speaker's name two months in advance or paying security fees, all these kind of impractical things to ban speakers. Um, so there does seem to be a bit of an issue at stake. Um, and, and John, what I'm kind of interested from you is, um, I guess, whether or not you agree with that, that premise that there is kind of an issue at stake, but also what, where you think it potentially has come from. What do you think is, is driving these kind of seeking out of, of some kind of censorship on campus? Hmm, that's a difficult question. And I think, like, I, I try, try to be as, like, specific as possible when it comes to the free speech discussion, because I think we often get, like, waylaid into into all into the weeds quite easily. So I think that there's a, as you were saying, a sort of a chilling effect that comes from student unions uh, and political activity that, that prevents people kind of engaging in, in an open discussion. Um, I think people are generally uncomfortable you know, it's not even, a, it's quite quite often set up as a debate between like right-leaning perspectives and left-leaning perspectives. I actually think that kind of students who go to university who are curious to, to kind of explore political ideas just feel that they can't have those conversations anymore. Um, where it's coming from is difficult to say. I mean, I know we've we've put out research in the past that, that identifies quite a strong uh, like left-wing current among academics, so it could be that, that, that there's just quite a lot of cultural bias on campuses, right? Um, but I don't. I'm not entirely sure w- why there's so much hostility towards certain kinds of opinions. I mean, I think it's something like 25, 26 percent of students at, at King's College London were okay with violence as a as a means of like preventing speakers with the wrong opinions from from talking at campus. So to to kind of take a, a somewhat countervailing perspective on this, uh, the government is is looking to introduce free speech champions, right? Uh, which would be, as far as I'm aware, a political appointment uh, designed to uphold the, you know the principles of free speech on campus. But from the perspective of particularly left leaning academics and uh, at, at these universities, the way they would see it is the government is putting in place a political appointment to police their opinions, right? Uh, And so I was wondering how you both feel about what can be construed as a sort of government authoritarian intervention into the academic freedoms of university, if if that's the way you see it or not. Yeah, this kind of, the the specific measure of a free speech champion and uh, trying to let academics who feel their speech has been restricted or students feel their speech has been restricted to seek legal legal damages for infringements it's a little it's difficult to pick apart because on the one hand you've got the idea of the kind of classic idea of free speech of well you know you should be able to um to kind of say what you want without government intervention or without um kind of being actively censored but on the other you've got the kind of the thicker conception of free speech is being able to say things without being in an atmosphere of chilling effects. And I think those two kind of can come into conflict. So let's say you're, um, you're a left-leaning academic and one of your, um, one of your departmental colleagues has uh, said something that you find extremely objectionable. Now, some might say, and I'm inclined to, to sympathize with this position, that if you were to criticize them and if you were to forcibly criticize them, even if you were to call them a particular pejorative term, mm-hmm. for example, uh, Ultimately, you're just exercising free speech in the form of, of counter speech, right? And 
presumably the sort of free speech and academic freedom champion is, is going to crack down on that sort of counter speech because that can be seen as creating a, a kind of chilling effect on free inquiry. But by doing that, they're also in a way creating a chilling effect on criticizing views that um, people, that academics or students might find objectionable. So I think the kind of the top down approach, may, maybe it's the, the kind of the only way to to tackle this. I'm not sure that it is. Um, I think that the kind of focusing on, on broader cultural change on campus, while it takes longer and it's a bit more of an airy-fairy concept, um, I think is like to be more effective in the long run and also run into less kind of problems with, with actually ending up restricting speech. But yeah, I, I am kind of worried by the, the idea of, you know, free speech becoming a kind of I mean, it already is, but becoming even more of a, a vehicle for the culture war. And a, yeah, exactly, and a political football. Um, Matthew, I don't know if you, you share my views on that. We were a bit more bit more sanguine about the government's approach. Yeah, look, I've had a lot of discussions about this um, in, in, again, wearing my, my previous kind of free speech hat and including a lot of discussions with um, some fellow kind of libertarian-leading individuals who take the view that universities should be autonomous that we don't actually want the government interfering in the, the um, potentially not just the kind of institutional structure, but the operations of universities in order to protect free speech, um, that we should respect these and, and respect their own governance and, and effectively allow universities to do as they please. Um, my view ultimately developed on this point to the perspective that effectively universities are actually public institutions. Uh, and they obviously have their own independent histories and they have, you know, particularly in the UK, hundreds and, and hundreds of years uh, behind some of, some of the most prestigious universities. But at the same time, they're basically at this point very dependent on taxpayer money and very dependent on uh, a taxpayer-subsidised loan system or semi-taxpayer-subsidised and organised loan system. And as a result, um, they have certain... Um, legal responsibilities. They have all sorts of different legal responsibilities. And, and one of those responsibilities is already there is, is to protect free speech as, as a fundamental um, purpose and, and meaning of the organisation. And if they're unable to do that, then they're failing as an institution. They're failing um, the t- ultimately the taxpayer who is, who is paying for, for their you know, relatively lavish um, lifestyle in a sense because you know universities absolutely love and adore universities, but they are a uh, and especially the amount of them in, in the world today are quite a, a posh thing, like a posh idea that effectively society should subsidise a, a relatively small cohort of people um, to be able to be academics and, and then train other individuals. Um, if they're going to get all these special privileges, they also have, I think, an accompanying responsibility. Um, and I, I think this is quite different to a private company. So I don't think a private company should have to keep an employee on their books, who's made some disturbing comment on social media? I, I think perhaps they should be liberal in their approach to their staff, but at the same time, as a matter of traditional contract law, um, you should be able to choose who you contract with freely. On the other hand, though, I think universities, for the, again, for their purpose of their existence, for the fact that if academics are going to be able to do their job that the taxpayers are subsidizing them to do, then they need that academic freedom um, to express ideas. And for students to be able to get the education that, that the taxpayer is subsidized hugely, um, they need that free speech. Um, I think you're right in the sense that we, we want to avoid the 
perception that that this is a partisan political issue. It shouldn't be. We we should be as um, fast to defend a, a left wing academic speech as we are someone who might be more sympathetic to our worldview. Now, it happens to be today that there are a lot more people on the right and kind of prominent positions who get criticised at universities, and that's because, to some extent, universities are a monoculture. This this was the the very good finding of a, a report by Noah Carl, of course, uh, Noah Carl, who was an author for the ASI, but also got sacked um, by Cambridge University mm-hmm. um, because he was deemed to be too controversial. Um, he found something like just 11% of academics have a conservative background. Now, in a situation where almost everyone is of a different worldview, you end up creating hostility to, to everyone else, and then you have this um, chilling effect, and you have this, this subsequent censorship. And I can appreciate that the government wants to push back against that, since the, the universities are, are not particularly reflective in terms of their perspective of, of academics and, to some extent, students of the broader population. Um, and therefore, you need that free speech right so that university can continue to function um, to, to do what they need to do. It's something called the Heterodox Academy, uh, which is a, a bunch of academics actually started by like a centre-left American academic by the name of Jonathan Haidt, who, who makes this argument that um, it, as, as part of the, the nature of um, confirmation and disconfirmation of, of, of a thesis, of a hypothesis, you can't just have people who all agree with each other in the same room, you know, constantly agreeing with each other because then that, that process breaks down. You need actually different people to challenge them and order for the system to work in order for the academic process to work. You need that challenge. So although I'm, I'm sceptical of top-down approaches, I, I, I think these are all kind of nice things that the government's trying to do and, and I'm not sure it's going to be completely effective. I, I don't think they're out of line by proposing these um, policy remedies. Yeah, the the kind of I, I share your view to uh, to a very large extent that universities that their function, you know, as public institutions needs to be to promote free inquiry as much as possible, and that kind of overrides to some extent, especially with um, with taxpayer funding and whatnot, the the kind of free association argument of well, we can choose to you know exclude academics who don't agree with if we don't want to. The kind of the the conclusion of that kind of line of thought though i find really interesting which is the idea that well let, let's say we were in uh, a wonderful utopia of course where all universities were privatized uh we we'd still presumably and, and i think rightly be concerned with promoting free speech at those private universities in the same way that whilst twitter and facebook might be private companies there's kind of a broader uh it's almost a, a liberal cultural point as opposed to a uh, a market or, or economic space one that, that we, we still care about this by virtue of being liberals uh, in general rather than uh, by virtue of being you know free marketeers yeah look absolutely daniel and i think on that note it might be time to move on to our final topic today the royal family in exciting news, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry will shortly be stripped of their official royal titles and military roles as their transition period out of the royal family ends on the 31st of March. This comes as apparently Meghan is doing a controversial interview with Oprah. Okay, okay, okay Matthew. So two things here. First off, Meghan... <laughs> Surely it's Megan oh, I didn't want to say oh what is that? <laughs> that? That is horrific. I need to start uh, this we again. We are definitely keeping that. No, 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 we're keeping that. <laughs> that is far too funny. Um, 
secondly, why on earth are we talking about royal drama on the Pin Factory economics and politics-based podcast? Should we actually care about this at all? Why are people across the English-speaking world obsessed with the royal family? Maybe go to someone who, who's a little bit more sympathetic here, uh, John, first. I go mean... On, give, give us your two-minute defense of the royals. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I mean, okay, first things first, I just want to clarify, but both of you are Republicans, in, yes. in that yes. sense. Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. There's, there's the cards laid out on the table there. Oh, <laughs> well, I, I would give a very a very weak defensive monarchy. This <laughs> but, is the most uh, unrepresentative uh, podcast. <laughs> is, this, is this a sort of do you do you wish to move towards abolition of the monarchy? Is it just a point of principle? Like, w- 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 yeah, what what is actually your perspective? Because I've never heard it before. I've just heard it sort of muttered about in the corners of our chat. <laughs> so I like that you've turned that around onto us. Um, that, that, well, I need well, to know well, what I'm defending. So what, is it what I'm arguing against? Okay. So so cards out on the table from my perspective. Um, I'm I'm a Republican, but I really don't care very much about being a Republican. I kind of find some of the, the more hardcore republicanism in the UK a little bit cringe. Um, either way, I don't think it's a particularly massive issue. I mean, I think Matthew may disagree with me here and that this could partially come from, again, we're coming back to a utilitarian versus rights-based perspective um, in the a more rights-based perspective would, would place more weight on the kind of the, the value of or, or the, the, the lack of value in the monarchy contributing against uh, democratic values, for example. But I mean, for, for me, it's just so it's a question. I, I actually don't like how effective the monarchy is at promoting a kind of cohesive national spirit. So this is my very hot take and my, um, my probably quite left of field anti, um, anti-monarchy argument is that a lot of people will defend the monarchy um, by saying that, well, one of the benefits is it, it kind of creates the, this cohesive national culture and it helps uh, provide a kind of figure for people to, to rally around. Um, and as someone who kind of finds uh, basing identity quite significantly off nationality or, or, or place or, or patriotism um, a little bit objectionable in, in, in various regards, I, I'm kind of see the royal family as playing a negative role there but i mean that the kind of classic arguments are well you know does it provide value for money it brings in tourists but it costs a lot of money a lot of people come down on different sides of that cost benefit calculation i think probably the strongest one in general and the one that resonates most with the the republican population of the uk uh, who, who are more than just the two people uh, <laughs> taking that position on this podcast <laughs> is this this anti-democratic democratic point uh, the idea that well you know, it's kind of a, an antiquated institution that has no democratic accountability but still holds at least notional power in the constitution even if it's ceremonial um, and it's a relic of the past and we should just um, we should just move on and get rid of it but but that's my take um, that's my cards on the table so I'll say when I was a bit younger I probably had a little bit more passion and fire for this issue in fact I think at one point I I had the the guts although I was never a member of the Australian um, Republican movement I think I went along to to one of their drinks meetings which was just as bizarre and strange as (laughs) any other political meeting you can you can imagine I mean my view uh, is is pretty straightforward which is that as a matter of principle I think a country should be governed by people who are representative democratically of of those people that 
they're, they're supposed to be governing for and that the monarchy is a basic affront to that principle, that the head of state of a country should not be decided by whose child you happen to be. That, that seems um, arbitrary and ridiculous to me. Um, I will say the reason why my views on this have developed to some extent is the fact that um, on a utilitarian side of things, I think there's probably uh, a pretty strong case for the monarchy. Um, yeah. We're going to use Daniel's um, yardstick for what is good and bad policy. If nothing else, because the monarchy seems to bring a lot of joy to people um, uh, in the direct sense of the queen, but also joy in the sense of the drama that it creates. People uh, yeah. cannot get enough of, of royal family drama, which was the, the opening part of this podcast. I suspect if we just did a podcast on royal family drama, we, we'd you know, get be more listeners. Top of the charts, even higher up. Let's just give up being a free market think tank and become a royal family drama think tank. I think our, our, our like boss, it. Matt Cocoin, would be very happy with the idea that we <laughs> move on to that topic. See, that's the thing. He should, he should have come on in this section of the podcast instead of me because my, the best defense I can, I can genuinely levy is, is the kind of utilitarian argument, which is that I just... I just, oh, it's such a basic opinion. I'm sorry. I just don't care about the monarchy. I see that, like, I agree with Dan in that I, I you know, from my perspective, I just that they, they don't they don't form a meaningful part of of kind of or at least they, I can see why you would believe that they shouldn't form a meaningful part of your like national identity and play into kind of ideas of patriotism and so on. Um, but I agree with you, Lesh, that it it just does seem to be something that the majority of Brits really like and really care about. And just because I don't particularly appreciate or understand that, I, I you know, I, I don't have it in me to really will republicanism into myself. Um, but to go back to, uh, to, to Meghan and Harry for a second, I, I've come down on the, uh, on the, on the conclusion that it's cringe to both like really defend them against their detractors, but also now to be a, be a big detractor of Harry and Meghan. I just think having, having any <laughs> like opinion about them. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you yeah, we, we've actually there. made a mistake making this the section of uh, <laughs> we've made a mistake making this the section of uh, the podcast today because just all of this is by definition incredibly cringe and, <laughs> and low status to talk about. We should we should just not talk about it at all. Um, on, on the kind of the <laughs> on the the utilitarian pro monarchy thing, that the fact that well, yeah, if you look at the polling. Um, three quarters of Brits in a YouGov poll last year said that they back the Queen, um, and nearly two thirds of people believe the UK should be a monarchy. So, in a sense, uh, the kind of utilitarian argument is completely knocked down there because, well, people enjoy it. So, you know, what are you going to do? I think for me, the the kind of response to that is yes, and we should get to a point where people don't enjoy it, and then we should abolish it rather than. Um, <laughs> rather than kind of abolish it while people still do enjoy it. In a sense, the monarchy and, and support of the monarchy is reflective of a broader bundle of values, some of which I think are um, obviously positive and, and tied in with, with notions of, of patriotism. And, you know, there, there is, I think, it, it's possible to have a, a kind of liberal patriotism that's actually, you know, uh, inclusive in, in various ways. I'm sounding very much like a student union rep right now, but hey, I, the, the, to, the token left libertarian... I don't think a student union rep would ever use the term patriotism positively, though, Daniel, so you probably would be counted by now, I'm yes. afraid. Very true, very true. <laughs> I, I think there's probably um, a, a number of kind of broader interesting questions that we, we can go into without um, getting back to, to, to Megxit and all the traditional... Megxit. 
makes it see I, I see I, I I'm at the level where I can't discuss it for or against I that job because I can't even say it right <laughs> but I, I think there's a, there's an element in which okay so the queen is extremely popular um does that carry through to Prince Charles um you know as treasonous as it is to say that the queen will not live forever um the answer is probably no but I think the the monarchy will will kind of um, plop along. There's a lot of talk in the Australian context, and I think Australia is where it's probably been more of a Republican sentiment compared to the other Kansas countries, compared to, to Canada or New Zealand, uh, that after the Queen dies is the right time for Australia to become a republic. What's quite interesting in the Australian context is that there's actually um, stronger support for the, the monarchy amongst younger Australians and then amongst middle-aged Australians who were kind of around in the 90s uh, when Australia had its last referendum on becoming uh, a republic. Um, they were also obviously there around the controversies around Diana and all, all the, the other stuff going on the royal family at the time. Um, that kind of middle-aged group is a little bit more republican and then older people uh, are more monarchist. So it doesn't seem like, ironically, the Australian Republican movement isn't really getting substantial inroads amongst younger Australians and the support for a monarchy has actually gone up a little bit in the, in the last couple of years. So I don't think there's... I, I talked to uh, my friend Chloe Wesley, who's a very big monarchist, and she's always very anxious about the idea that Australia is about to become a republic. And I have to just remind her that Australia is actually not that close to becoming a republic. It's not really an issue that's talked about anymore. I mean, in the 90s, it was like an inevitability about it. There was a sense in which, oh, maybe people won't vote for it today. And it was effectively voted down at the time. There probably was majority support for a republic, but there wasn't support for a model of, of how to elect um, uh, the, the, the president, the head of state. And it was it was tagged as a, a politician's republic um, because it, the president would be chosen by uh, the, the House of Representatives. So I actually think it would probably be a good model because you don't want to create a separate elected president without having the kind of checks and balances that exist in the US system. And you kind of undermine the whole Westminster system, which I think arguably works very well, um, even though it's, it's not really designed in the way it wasn't designed to work the way it is it's kind of evolved very successfully kind of putting on a, a little bit of a Birkingham hat there and the problem is you've got all these prerogative powers that are now exercised by the government and there's all this antiquated um, stuff going on out there in, in in the way it's exercised and there's probably a strong argument um, that some of it needs to be a bit better clarified and you, you could probably have a, a more clearly written out constitution in the UK um, but at the same time it doesn't seem like you know, going back to the idea of, of central planning, that you could necessarily design a, a better system um, that, than, than what the, the UK has. And therefore, I think transitioning to a republic would, would be a very um, dangerous exercise, even if it is uh, and, and more, you know, idealist, ideally it is a better form of government. It's not clear to me that you'd end up in a better outcome by moving to a monarchy. So moving to a It's republic. interesting... It's interesting that in Australia you've got this this kind of contingent of young monarchists over and above the the middle aged uh, population because you, you don't quite have the same at least the, the latest polling in the UK um, is is perhaps less surprising the younger you are the less likely you are to um, support monarchy although there is still uh, majority support amongst young people for the monarchy as well I also found it interesting you mentioned. Um, mentioned the the kind of potential succession with the queen and i think that that is undoubtedly going to change those those polling numbers um when 
Queen Elizabeth does finally pass, and and we get a, a new king. Finally, uh, don't sound like you're, you're celebrating it, Daniel. Jeez, wow. No, 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 no. Finally, I'm I'm saluting her for uh, for, for lasting this long. As, as we know, right, working as a royal is an extremely stressful job. Um, but Ooh, uh, no, no. Be fair. Be fair. No. I mean, I I think it actually is. I think it's fair. Oh no, it makes me a monkist then. I, I, I actually I actually wasn't being sarcastic then. I think <laughs> the, the, the problem for me is that the fact that um being Queen Elizabeth II is quite difficult is often kind of used as justification for the monarchy, it feels like. So you, you get this, oh you know, the, the you know, the Queen works so so hard for us and therefore the monarchy is good. I'm like, hang on, that's two separate things. Like say, well, you know, someone who works in let, let's say you're you're on the left of politics and someone says, Well, you know, that's that CEO of that big oil company works really hard. <laughs> you're kind of like, Yeah, but but that's completely irrelevant to whether I want <laughs> the, you know, the, the oil company to exist or not. Uh, of course in, in my case I, I would love them to exist, but I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable with that. But uh, but yeah, I, I feel geez, like she's your anti monarchy a pro oil company. I don't think you're gonna have more controversial <laughs> opinions, Daniel. Oh. <laughs> yeah, just just not like the other girls. That, that's think, this is a point I think at least smart Australian Republicans will try to make uh, is that you need to separate the institution from the Queen, who is an eminently right. respectable figure, who has no doubt contributed a lot in terms of her, her global leadership and, and her leadership of charities and um, as a as a figure of of respect that a lot of people. Um, seem to, to benefit, from, benefit from quite substantially. Um, does that mean that she should be the head of state of a country? I think that's, you're right, it needs to be a separate question. And that's the whole idea of saying, well, we shouldn't properly deal with this issue until um, the Queen is no longer the head of state of Australia and, and Prince Charles is the head. I think in some ways that's insulting potentially to the Queen to say, oh, we're going to wait for you to die and then we're going to... Wait for you to get... pop off, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't necessarily endorse that as the approach. I mean, it might be... Uh, politically the the most um, uh, rational approach, I guess, uh, if you try to make Australia a republic. But again, the, the issue is something that's kind of even died down in Australia. I don't even think it's a, it's a big issue in the UK. It's almost bizarre that we're even talking about it on uh, a podcast. It's not something that, that people really think about. I and mean, that's kind of what stumped you to some extent, John, which is that there isn't really much of a Republican debate in the UK. And, and I get the feeling the Republican debate in the UK is, is very much full of proper cranks and, and crazies yeah, than a, yeah. a legitimate political movement that, that's going to be able to get popular support. I just, I think, I think the royal family does a very good job of kind of moving with the times. Maybe that's a controversial thing to say, but they seem to be good at minimizing and diminishing their own influence uh, to, to a place that the public is usually pretty happy about. And so, as you say, I, I don't, it's a very strange fight to pick, I think, particularly at the moment, as you say. Yeah, I, I I think there's kind of coming back to the the cultural impact of of monarchy as well. There's a question about how much people who tend to have kind of a broad bundle of patriotic values they just tend to be the sort of people that also support the monarchy versus whether there's like a a causal effect there. You know, if you have a monarchy around, people that solidify their ideas of of nationality more just just coming back to that i think it was a couple of years ago that the last kind of big yougov poll on, on broad support and one of the things i found really really interesting about this is that there's a, a big divide between monarchists and republicans as to whether they do things like uh, make an effort to support british businesses and prefer to buy british brands and that that kind of thing for me highlights the the kind of cultural 
differences between um, a lot of pro and, and anti-monarchists and how that can actually manifest in you know in in market terms um so i can imagine that you know if if there's a group of people that much prefer to to buy british for example they're also more likely to be in favor of, of protectionism when it comes to trade or something like that maybe that's a logical leap too far but certainly i, I can see those sort of attitudes being aligned with you know a, a kind of patriotism that is not liberal and not as outward looking obviously you know i'm generalizing here this is you know does not apply to very many individuals in the uk but i think as a broad cultural trend there's something to be said for it i mean i have a, a another thing to say on that, which is i wonder how durable support for the monarchy really is and because unless you were saying that the younger people in australia now support monarchy more so than than the sort of middle generation of, of 30 to so what is it 30 to 45 um but uh, is that just because there haven't really been any negative arguments made about the royal family for quite a long time, really? Um, such that, like, if someone surveyed me, for example, I, asked me if I was in favor of the monarchy, I'd probably just say yes, because it's something that I think, you know, people like, I don't have a problem with it. But it's not something that I, like, wouldn't change my mind about, right, if... if it suddenly became more of a hot button issue. I'd probably have to reevaluate my perspective. Yeah, I mean, you could argue it would be because something like the EU, which no one really thought about, and then when a referendum came up, yeah. um, uh, uh, suddenly a, a much broader set of people took a lot of interest and a lot of passion uh, about which side they're on. I don't think there's about to be a referendum on on the monarchy in the UK, and therefore the, take back control. <laughs> take back, take back control <laughs> would be an, an excellent uh, slogan for a uh, campaign to remove remove the monarchy but you know, who am I to say um, yeah I think it is to some extent what it's what's talked about uh, I honestly don't know whether or not in the last six months or something that the polling average in Australia for the monarchy's change as a result of um, Meghan and Harry uh, or anything else I think it's it's kind of remained um, not, not too different but it's possibly changed slightly uh, the, the more it's talked about, as an issue, um, but the institution isn't really being talked about as an issue very much in Australia. Mm. So I think the, you're probably right for for as long as it's not really an issue of debate. And quite frankly, there's a thousand other issues to sort out over the, the coming years. Yep. It's yep, it's yep, not yep. likely it's not likely to become one. Yeah, just a, a kind of a final thought, I guess, for this section: the fact that there has been so much media attention on the individuals involved in the royal family, with you know your Megans and and Harry's and whatnot, that, that's often interpreted as though it's going to be negative for the monarchist cause or the monarchist position. But in some ways, I think it could be a positive because it is focusing on individuals and personal dramas, and it's making it more of a kind of celebrity-style news story uh, and, and kind of distracting people's attention away from the institutional issue. People are more worried about the latest drama and the, the Meghan... Markle and Prince mm. Harry saga than they are about you know questioning the role of the monarchy um, and and you know to be honest um, I, d- I don't blame them because it's it, you know I, I don't find that sort of you know drama particularly interesting myself but I think it would be very elitist of me to to say that you know people are, are completely wrong to find that interesting or that they shouldn't do that and actually they should be focused on you know, the very important business of uh, republicanism because it's going to make such a big difference to the world if we make that political reform. Um, 
I'd, I'd like to see it, but in terms of you know what really matters, then yeah, it's it's not quite the most important thing in the world, should we say? Well, on the topic of something that doesn't really matter, but has still been no doubt, I think, still a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the Pin Factory. My name is Matthew Lesh, and I'm the head of research at the ASI. You've been listening to my colleagues Daniel Pryor, who is our head of programs and John McDonald, not the former uh, Chancellor, Shadow Chancellor from Labor's Thank side of politics, just to make sure everyone's aware who they're listening to. Uh, in fact, he is the head of government affairs at the ASI. Please do, if you're enjoying the podcast, leave us a review, get in touch if you have any feedback, and please do tune in again next week for another edition. Mm-hmm.